welcome to the very first episode of Back from the Abyss. I'm Dr. Craig Heacock, your host and resident psychiatrist. In thousands and thousands of hours of listening to my patients' stories, I've had the deepest privilege and at times the nearly overwhelming pain of trying to help people through their darkest times. Years ago, earlier in my career, a patient's suicide almost destroyed me. It took me a long time to find my way out. More on this in a later episode. These stories are my attempt to share what I see every day, that healing is possible, that there is great courage and wisdom and beauty in the journey out of the darkness. With these stories, I want to spread hope. Whether you have been touched by psychiatric illness yourself or know someone who has, or want to learn a little bit about psychiatry, or just lose yourself in a moving story, I hope each of you can find something meaningful here. Names and some details have been changed in these stories to maintain confidentiality. In this, the very first episode of Back from the Abyss, we explore one of the darkest and most terrifying parts of the abyss, coming face to face with a desperate and overwhelming need to die. Our guest today, Elizabeth, fought this mounting darkness for almost 25 years while finishing school, raising three children, and working. And then in 2010, at age 40, she took a massive and near-fatal dose of multiple medications. This is her story of healing, of gratitude, of finding a new life. Elizabeth, hi. Hi. I want to thank you so much for coming to the podcast today. I was thinking maybe we would start in the year 2010. You and I spoke a little bit before the show today that there's sort of a part A and a part B to your life, mm. kind of pre-2010 and post-2010. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, so April 2010, um, I had a very significant suicide attempt that was almost successful And unlike any previous suicide attempt or um, any bad thoughts or dark places, um, this was a time where I really, really wanted to die. And um, it, I mean, it showed because I was in the hospital um, on a ventilator for five days, and then I was in um, a psychiatric facility for a week after that. Um, But... But I just, I know the, that feeling. And um, I will never forget how I felt and how, how dark and hopeless I felt. That was the darkest point of your life? Yes, yeah. definitely. How long did that fall into the darkness last in 2010? Maybe you could tell us a little bit more about the days, weeks, months preceding your near-fatal suicide attempt? Um, well, going back, I would say that it started in that winter, um, but I didn't realize how sick I was. It was in reading journals and in really thinking about it and thinking about, um, really trying to think about when I was sick. Um, I would say the entire winter, and it just, it was up and down. Um, I, my doctor 
wanted to put me on a drug that I didn't want to be on. And so I have several journal entries that reference that. And You didn't want to be on because? Um, side effects. One of the biggest ones I didn't want was weight gain. One of the painful truths in psychiatry is that many of the most powerful and effective medications have weight gain as a primary side effect. This seems to occur through a combination of increased appetite, carbohydrate cravings, and disrupted insulin metabolism. And I was thin and petite, and the idea of putting on even 10 pounds was just like garish. I mean, it was like <laughs> that would be the worst thing to happen to me in my entire life. Um, but I was, I was nervous about any major side effects. So part of you knew that things were spiraling downhill and your doctor's telling you, try this medication, it, was, might, it might cause some weight gain. Right. And, um, and then there were like things like drooling um, and um, being tired all the time. It was really, really hard to think about going through my day and not be able to um, really be a part of my day because I was so tired and not being able to even wake up. And I just thought that I'm already a prisoner and um a prisoner the, how um with my illness um the illness keeps me from really being me and really living living my life and i thought that taking this drug because i've been on i'd been on so many different drugs and like taking this one which was seriously hardcore um I would have to get, oh, the other thing, <laughs> that um, blood draw, having to get my blood drawn every week initially. Oh, is this clozapine? It is clozapine. Oh, clozapine, okay. Clozapine is perhaps the best mood stabilizer and antipsychotic that we currently have. However, managing its side effects can be a major challenge, and the required blood draws every week for the first six months can feel like an additional burden at first. Every, everything about this drug just was screaming, no, 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 no. And, um, and I felt like I'm already a prisoner to this illness. I won't be a prisoner to a drug as well. Mm -hmm. Tell me, this, this experience of being prisoner to the illness, specifically in 2010, can you take us back and describe what it was like to be you in the days and weeks leading up to the attempt? What were you thinking? What were you feeling? Um, well, so I'm bipolar. And so it's like there was this horrible mix of mania, that rage, and, um, and the depression. And I, it, was most, it wasn't like happy mania. It was like rage and anger. And so for months, that's how I felt. I felt like I was angry all the time. And I felt this sense of like people were sort of out to get me, that I was the one who was, um, who was in the right. If there was ever anything wrong going on, that it was their fault, not, not my fault. Um, I would get into these very dark moods where I couldn't get out of bed. And I would start, like I wanted to watch dark movies or movies where someone was suicidal 
and I started reading some of my favorite authors, um, like Virginia Woolf and Sylvia Plath. Um, was that comforting to to watch dark movies and read dark books, or was that were you doing that to try to discover something about the way you were thinking and feeling? It was. Um, it was comforting because, like, for example, with Sylvia Plath, and um, I went and reread The Bell Jar. And I was like, see, this is how I feel. And I would feel like, why, just like she describes in the book, why should I wash my hair when I'm just going to have to wash it again tomorrow? Why should I make my bed or get out of bed when I'm just going to have to do it again? And that whole sense of these these strong women writers who committed suicide that's that's where I am. And it was a strange comfort to think that I'm not alone. And I didn't, at the time, think, oh, my God, this is a cry for help. I'm suicidal. I'm like, you know, really identifying with these, these authors. Um, I just thought, see, this is, this is what's normal. This is what people do when they feel this way. And I didn't want to get out of bed. I didn't want to do, I didn't want to eat. I didn't want to have good relationships with my family. You didn't want to have those things because they seemed pointless or they seemed like too much work or? Too much work. Yeah. Um, And just both, I guess. Um, Like nobody understood. I felt like I was the only one in this world who understood. Um, In fact, I am thinking of one of my um, journal entries where I say for everyone else, um, this is clinical. They look at me and they see, oh, you know, you need to get out of bed. You need to do something. My doctor, it's clinical. He wants to write me a prescription. And for me, this is my life. And why can't people just understand that I don't want to be a prisoner? And yet I am. I'm a prisoner to this depression. And yet I couldn't, there's not really a way to make it make sense to other people. Um, Was it that you couldn't, you said your doctors thought of this as clinical, mm -hmm. wanted to give you a medication, clozapine. Was it that you were not able to separate the illness from you, Elizabeth, like as a person? Like it sounds like what you're saying, like it was possibly so tied up in you that you you weren't able to separate. I yeah, I think that's very accurate. That um, and that's why I viewed viewed that drug as like yet another oppressive thing that people were trying to put on me that um, no one really understood the pain that I was in. And um, so interesting. So it's like your doctor trying to help you felt like almost like putting putting the thumb down on you. Yes. Yeah. I did feel that way. As people fall into more severe depression, they typically lose their insight. They become increasingly unable to see how ill they really are they may see treatment as unnecessary or even wasted on them. And um, and that's why, again, going back and reading these things is that that was the only way that I felt that someone could understand me were people who were already dead and had committed suicide. So... Um, Looking and, back at your journals, was, was there any evidence that there was a part of you that recognized what was going on, that you were quickly steadily following or falling into a hopeless suicidal place because of a mood disorder was it or looking back in your journals was it that it was again so part of who you were that 
I, when I read my journals and look back, it almost feels like I'm reading, like, who is this, who is this mad person? Who is this person? It, it doesn't feel like me. And yet, and yet it is me. I, I don't know if I can really explain that. Um, but it's clear that as a healthy person reading it, oh, goodness, there's, there's this progression and you can see this descent into this darkness. Um, even my handwriting, when um, I look at my journals, there would be times where it was like completely normal and a beautiful script. And then it would descend into this like angry print. And um, even it would slope downward on the page, not following the lines that were there. It would just like start to get really angry. Um, I also, um, thinking back, um, I did write, like, what would I do? I wrote an entry that said, um, I don't know if I would leave a suicide note. And that's how it's how it started. And how long was that before the actual attempt? That was in February. Mm -hmm. Two months. Yeah. And it was like, I don't know if I were to kill myself, if I would leave a suicide note or not. What would I say to my kids to make this, you know, because they're going to hate me um, for doing this. I know they're going to hate me. So what could I say? Nothing. There's nothing I could say. So why leave a note? Um, and that was also the time when I started writing down quotes from from female authors and or from movies or whatever that I thought I was very clear <laughs> at the time. I thought... Um, this is going to make sense. If I if I commit suicide, then this will make sense to everyone. This will everyone will understand if they just read these. And looking back now, I realize, no, that <laughs> that's not something that people will understand. It's something that only makes sense to you. Mm -hmm. Was it's, was there a rationalization that you were trying to build in your head a case? why you should die or why the world or your kids would be, be better off without you. Yes. Um, and I didn't realize that that's what I was doing at the time, but that was absolutely what I was doing. And, um, what was the crux of your argument of why it would be, yeah, why you needed to die? Um, well, first it was for me because I was so tired and I was just tired of living the way I'd been living and it was so painful and if I was tired and it was hard for me to be alive, then certainly it was hard for my children to be a part of my life. And they would be better off with people who were not, um, who were not hurting them. And I felt like my life was hurting them and that they would, they would have better lives if I weren't there. And your husband as well? Yes. Yes that he would be better off without you. Absolutely. And your kids would be better off without you. Yes. And mm -hmm. I didn't even think like, because um, he's their stepdad and it's my second marriage. I didn't at all think that any sort of thinking ahead that, oh, well, he probably wouldn't be able to be a part of their lives and any different ways that might enrich their lives. Um, that was, everything was gone. It was just very clear. I was a problem. I needed to not be a problem in the way for that to happen was for me to to commit suicide. Mm -hmm. I wanted to die. I remember 
being this mix of of crying and depression. If I were just depressed, I wouldn't have had the um, energy. Mm-hmm. But I had that that manic rage, and um, and I remember like planning it out again, going to like writing down those those quotes and. Um, the quotes were fueling you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. They were absolutely, and just thinking, okay, I'm I'm ready. I I have everything outlined, and everything is set to go. And um, and I I had a lot of you know we tried a lot of different meds, um, and so I had a lot of meds in my arsenal. Um, three months of different meds, and I had. Had you um, been had you been hoarding them mm-hmm. with that purpose? S- sort of, but um, I mean, I kept. Here's the thing: like, I kept going back to therapy, and I kept going back to my psychiatrist because I felt like there, there's got to be, there's got to be something out there that is going to drag me out of this. It's going to make me well, like. If I had not had meds, I was at the point at this time where I would have found another way. Um, that was, I thought that would be the least painful, I guess. And it was also immediate. And so I I had this plan and I got, I had like chocolate milk that I brought in because I knew that that would be more soothing to the meds going down and I could like gulp more, I could gulp faster, Um and I set all of the meds out so that they would be ready. I had all of the tops off. Um, and my thought was that I would take enough meds to pass out and then I would drown. Um, so I filled our tub. And um, and I got out my journals so that the kids would be able to see be able to see where I was. They wouldn't have to find it. They wouldn't have to. So it wasn't a suicide note, but it was. It was something that I was leaving that... They could read the quotations. They could, and, exactly, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Um, and then I just looked at everything that I had outlined. And um, I just, I started to just cry. These angry, sad, um, just horrible tears. And I had a picture, I had a picture of my three kids... And um, I looked at them and I was like, fuck this. Mm. And that's when I um, went and I just gulped. I just swallowed handfuls of of pills, just um, so many, so many pills. And I passed out before I could get to the water, to my bath. I... I really believe that had I been able to do what I planned to do, that I probably wouldn't be here. So you were found unconscious? I was found unconscious. By? Um, my husband. And I remember um, I remember waking up. He was shaking me. And, um, and I opened my eyes. And then I, I don't remember... I don't remember anything after that. Um, And I didn't know it was five days later until people told me it was five days later.
and I woke up um, to, it must have been a nurse, um, telling me to cough and um, telling me that it's like, don't talk, you know, don't try to talk. And my eyes flittering open. And um, instead of thinking, oh, great, I'm alive, you know, this is fantastic, or here I am, the first thing I thought is, oh, fuck. Like, this is worse. Waking up and having to deal with life again and knowing what was going to come. Like, I knew that... um, I knew that my ex-husband was going to try to take custody of the kids. and um, Even as you were waking up those first hours and days, you knew that was Mm -hmm. coming. Um, I just, I knew what was ahead of me and that it was not going to be good. And that I didn't, I didn't know if I would have it in me to do that. So, so I, I didn't feel any sort of gratitude or, yay, I'm still here, or um, it was regret Mm. that I didn't do it right. And do you think your husband knew that? As you were coming out of this, do you think he could sense? I think he could. Mm -hmm. I think he could. Um, In fact, I know he could, because when I was in the hospital after this, psychiatric hospital, not um, hospital, hospital. Um, He kept trying to tell me, you need to pay attention. You need to do what your doctors are telling you. You need to focus. You You need to do this to be well. And I just was angry. I was, I was angry at the doctors. I was angry at my husband. I was angry at anyone who tried to tell me that, um, that I should be grateful because I knew that what was before me mm-hmm. was going to be horrible. Mm-hmm. How long did it take to start to feel some measure of gratitude that you survived? Some measure of gratitude. Um, that's hard. Um, because what was going on in my life after that um, and trying to put my life back together it was really hard. And was it wasn't like, oh, I put things back together and then everything was great. But I would say about a month or so, um, maybe even two, that I started to feel like, okay, this is, this is how it is. Let's figure out how to make this work. Um, but I, it, I still wasn't happy. So it sounds like it started with more of a grudging acceptance. Yeah. Like this is going from the deepest disappointment that you didn't die to, okay. Now what? Now this is what I have to do. Right. I went out of town in, it must have been June. Um, so the suicide attempt was in April. And in June, my aunt invited me to come visit And I remember having a lot of talks with her about gratitude and about um, that each day, if I could try to find something to be happy about each day, um, that that would help me in recovery, in finding myself again. 
Um, and so I really, really worked. It's not, it's not like I just crawled out of this and then all of a sudden, you know, I was better. Um, it was, it's active. Um, even to now being grateful, being grateful that, um, being grateful that I'm alive is active. Um, it's not something that I did once and, and got better. Um, but it's every day. Mm-hmm. Was was anyone angry with you? Mm. I don't know. Um, thinking about my husband as well, I think that going back to clozapine, he wanted me to take that as early as my psychiatrist did. He want he was like, I don't I don't care if you gain fifty pounds. Like we've got to do something to get ahead of this and um so my talking about not wanting to take that that drug or even not wanting to try other drugs because I was just so insistent that the side effects were going to be too much that's when he would get angry Mm -hmm. um and where it seemed like he had little patience because he's like do you not see where we were we were there at this one at one time that it almost destroyed everything did did the near death in 2010 change anything between you and your psychiatrist? Um, I think it did. Um, I actually wrote about that too, and um, about the very real relationship that I um, feel. He's been my psychiatrist for. 15 years, 14 years. And um, it, it, um, I believed him. And I think that he's part of why I did keep going back and taking drugs that I didn't want to take and um, trying things that I didn't want to try and fast forward he did actually obviously he got me to take clozapine um that was the ticket and that was one of the tickets yeah yeah um with without clozapine i wouldn't be here um i wouldn't have relationships with my children or um with my husband i wouldn't have a marriage Mm um i think that might be helpful for people to hear more about your decision to start a medication that your doc had wanted you to try for a long time that you very possibly, if not even probably would gain weight on as, which as you said, was just a horrifying fear. And then now we're post 2010 and you actually decide to do that. Um, Again, it goes back to my relationship with my psychiatrist. He just was very patient with me and just kept trying and kept trying, kept trying. And um, I think it was about a year after my suicide attempt, I I think after, so like 2011-ish. And and I said, okay, I I trust you. And the side effects were just as bad as I thought they were going to be. Not quite. I've, I've gained... I've gained about 15 pounds, 20 pounds. I've gained about 20 pounds. Um, 
but he's been there with me every step of the way and he's believed me and not not tried to minimize any of my feelings about um meds that I'm on has talked me through it I've always felt like I'm in control and have final say about what I'm doing um no, I'm, guess, I'm guessing yeah. there's some percentage of people listening right now who are thinking, mm. okay, so she gave in <laughs> to her doc and, and gained 20 pounds, 20 pounds, 20 pounds, which I think many women would say, okay, you know, I've heard yeah. women in, in my practice say, oh, I'd rather be dead or mm-hmm. nothing, nothing, nothing could be worth gaining Yeah, 5, 10, 15, 20 pounds, nothing. Well, and I said that. I said that very thing. I'm like, I would rather be dead. Um, I don't want to take this. Again, my journals, I I am not going to be a prisoner to this. Um, I often thought that gaining weight would make me more depressed and would make me suicidal and make it worse. I thought that that would make it worse. That drug would make it worse. And, um, and it's not. And it's so worth it. It's, yes, it's no fun to be more heavier than you want to or your ideal weight or whatever. But what you gain is amazing. So what specifically <clears throat> have you gained? Um, myself. I, it's hard to say specifically because, um, so here's here's kind of an example, I guess. When I pre-clozapine, pre-2010, um, I was sort of known as this, like, not wild, but fun-loving and charismatic and out there. I'm always the one to make jokes, and um, I just, I was fun. I was fun to be around, or so I was told. Um, and then the mania would turn to rage, um, and then I would have the inevitable crash. But I always thought that I was an extrovert. I always thought that I love to be around people and that I love to go out. Um, Post-clozapine, I'm very quiet and I'm reserved. I don't love parties. I don't love being with people. Not, not that I don't like people and not that I don't have friends. I do. But I prefer to hang out in my house and read or bake or do quiet activities. And... Um, what is I, this the real you? And this is the real me. And it took me a while to to realize that. Because um, at first I thought, gosh, I've lost me. And that's not true at all. What happened was I found me. Um, so taking clozapine helped me actually be the person that I always was. And, you know, I think back to before I was ill and diagnosed. Um, that's how I was as a child and a teenager, early teenage years, I was, um, I was quiet and I read and I was, you know, content to be home. And so to have that again, to have that be, this is the real me. Um, that's, that's worth 20 pounds. That's mm-hmm. priceless. My husband says that this is the real me. And he said, even though I was sick, when we met, when we started dating, he said, I always knew you and having you be you is um it saves our marriage so 
The earliest signs of depression and bipolar disorder typically appear in early to mid-adolescence. Elizabeth's path into the darkness began in high school, when she turned into someone she didn't recognize. Why don't we loop back now, Elizabeth, and talk about the earliest signs that something was changing in you? Like, I think that was back in adolescence, mm-hmm. you mentioned. Um, when I was 15, um, my sophomore year in high school, we had moved um, across the country and to kind of resettle, and my dad had a new job, and um, my sophomore year was, was really horrible. I started I started that year feeling very hopeful and I was excited to be in a new place and I'm going to make new friends and everything's going to be wonderful to um by I would say by January or February of that year um I was I stopped wearing makeup um I stopped wearing like cute clothes I was wearing like baggy sweatshirts and um I was writing very dark poetry um it wasn't specifically about suicide but it was about death I wondered what death would be like and what it would mean to end something and just to fade into black and that went against everything that I had been taught you know we were a very religious family and so we believed in an afterlife and And you hadn't had these thoughts as a, as a child or even as a younger adolescent? No, never. I mean, I'd always been pretty mercurial. I'd always, you know, really felt things intensely. And um, I loved intensely. I was sad intensely. You know, everything was was um, was big for me. But I'd never experienced that kind of darkness. And I didn't know what it was. And I had no idea what was happening. Um, and then in the spring, I was... It was great. You know, it's May and school's over. And I didn't really even pay attention to, well, that was then. You know, I didn't think anything about it. I was like, oh, well, that was sad that that happened to you. Um, it was also odd that um, I was like this great kid. I was always a really, really good kid. And um, and that, that spring, early, early spring, um, I had my first taste of alcohol. It was actually on a trip, a school-sponsored um, activity that said drinking happened. <laughs> and um, and they found out about it. Our chaperones found out. And so I was suspended for two days because it was a school thing. My parents, and instead of being angry, I mean, they were angry, but they were more like, so disappointed (laughs) and that just fed you know um that fed that darkness that I was in and like great I've disappointed my family and um um I'd also at that time my grades started to slip um I know that you know I'm going back to this dark winter but I had always gotten A's straight A's and I now started to get C's, and that was something around the same time that the drinking happened. Um, my parents found out that I was getting C's, and especially C's in things like English, where I was really strong. I loved, I loved to read, and I loved to write. It was, it was great. And 
my parents couldn't believe like where is our daughter where is this perfect child who does everything that we say who you know keeps every curfew and um yeah I was just everything was falling apart for me and I didn't know why that was happening it was like it followed me around it um it almost felt like a a tangible dark thing was was a part of me and I would go to school and it would be darkness. I went home and there would be darkness. And um, if I woke up, there would be darkness. I just, it was like this shroud, right? It was just enveloping me all the time. I wonder if it felt internal or external, because that image of a shroud is like the darkness of the world is enveloping you versus a darkness emanating from inside you that's then sort of coloring and poisoning the world? I think that it's both. Um, I don't feel like I was poisoning the world. I definitely felt like there was some sort of like cover, that it was following me, that there was something. But it was like that permeated, like that got into me and became a part of me. And like, so why am I so dark? What's wrong with me that I feel so empty? You know, it... It was like it be, was the outside and it be, then became internal. And did you, in high school, start to become suicidal or, or wish you were dead, or did that come later? Um, I don't... Again, it was that like fascination with death. It wasn't suicide, but I was fascinated by death, and I wanted to think about death and I wanted to talk about death I wanted to read about death um people's experiences with death if I can I loved obituaries and I loved graveyards I still do actually but it was a in a weird way it was in sort of this um very dark way and so during my depressed times in high school um I really really thought about death a lot did you hide that Mm -hmm. yeah I think that part of me knew that that was weird and that that would upset people I think that I think that I knew that if I told people hey I want to read about death and suicide and but it's but it's not me I just I just have an interest it's just like a little side thing I've got going on um that they would have been very disturbed by that probably rightfully so <laughs> the most psychiatrically risky and destabilizing time of a woman's life is typically during the postpartum period after the birth of her first child elizabeth's illness took a major turn for the worse what was your entry point into some kind of treatment whether psychotherapy or medication therapy or otherwise mm-hmm. Um, I was, was 22, I think, and um, I was feeling really sad. Um, I think that I had felt a lot of postpartum depression with um, my daughter. And, and that was that, at what age? That was, at, um, that was a year before, in like okay. when I was 21. And, but I didn't really recognize what was happening. I just thought it's more of the same, that like darkness. And then um, 
someone suggested that I see a doctor and I didn't want to do that. I didn't want to go to a therapist or anything like that, but I did go to my gynecologist and he put me on Prozac. And I think that helped for a little while. Um, not, not for long, but um, for, for postpartum. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was, that's my earliest recollection of getting some help. And how did that evolve your course of treatment? Because we heard a little while ago about the huge changes that happened after 2010. But that's a long period of time. Many years. Many years. Because in 2010, you were how old? Um, I was 40. 40. Mm -hmm. So onset of darkness and obsessions with death in high school and, and grades falling apart and starting to use and abuse substances getting a little bit of help from your gynecologist, possibly age 21, 22, but take us through those next 18-ish years. Wow. What what were sort of the high and low points of your course through different treatments trying to get help? Um, it was hard. It was a lot of long years. Um, I felt like there was something so... From ninety, from nineteen ninety two to nineteen ninety eight, um, that was its own set of darkness and mania, and um, I wasn't quite sure what was wrong with me. I knew something was wrong with me. Um, Were you being hospitalized, or mm-mm. no, not yet? No, it was just because I kept sinking into these dark depressions. And then what I now know was mania. Um, at the time, I just thought I was like such a great, fun person. <laughs> I'm sure you were for a little while. So fantastic. Mm. Um, but like I would do things like completely rearrange the furniture in our house. And I would like there was one weekend that I decided to paint the house and I, I literally did it in a weekend and was just up all the time. And um, I painted the rooms like very bizarre colors. Not like, oh, this will be, let's change this from eggshell to like a, a stark, beautiful white. No, I, I did like Robin, you know, Robin's egg blue <laughs> and and pink. And, um, and that made perfect sense to me at the time. Like, why wouldn't anyone do that? And now looking back, I'm like, that's so ridiculous. <laughs> Why did your friends not raise their eyebrows and say, okay, that's really, really strange <laughs> that, that mm. you just decided to do that. And there were things like that all the time that I was doing. And um, I just, I, I didn't really know that those were tied together, like having these great highs and then these big lows. I didn't know what that was. Um, so you're raising three little kids, mm-hmm. having these huge swings of mood and functioning and at times being very productive and euphoric and then crashing. And But most of the time when they're little, not getting any kind of treatment help. Right. Right. And I regret that. Um, I have a lot of that guilt that I wish that I could have... Um, 
I wish that I could have been a better mother and um, that I could have done fun things like taking them for picnics and to the library and on all of these outings, not just when I was super high, but that I had been consistent and in my moods that I had been treated. I wish that I had been treated so that I could have been a better mom to them. Was anyone trying to reach out and say, Elizabeth, hey, maybe you should see someone or get some kind of treatment, or, or were you pretty alone during those years? I was pretty alone. Mm-hmm. Um, I know that there was judgment. Um, family, friends, people at church, but no one said, there's something wrong, let's help you, let's figure this out. Um, it was just a lot of blaming and shaming and um blaming and shaming from your family everyone Mm. i i felt like and and part of this might be the illness too but i felt like everyone was against me i felt like um there was no one to help i felt completely alone when i look back on that decade when i look back on the 90s um People talk about the fun things that were going on and, you know, politics or movie stars or, you know, the Internet and all of these, you know, things. And for me, it's just a dark, horrible time. That's all I remember is it being a horrible, horrible time. The 90s being sort of a lost decade. Mm -hmm. Yes, it's definitely a lost decade, which is sad because that was a lot of when I was raising my kids. And it was just I was so sick that um, there are just so many months and years that I just and your first husband didn't see it or try to help you get help no and your family didn't see it or recognize it no um that sounds so lonely it was very lonely it's a very lonely time and I mean to my credit I was doing the best I could I you know I I feel so much guilt for things, but I don't know what I would have done. I don't know how I could have done anything different than what I was already doing. It sounds like you were doing the best you could. I hope. I hope that that was enough. It was actually. Um, I was the one who actually wanted to seek treatment for bipolar disorder. Um, I had read something, and um, and I said, that sounds like me. And I don't know exactly what it was. I think it was um, a university, like it was a research paper, and I don't know how I came across it, but when I read it, I thought, this sounds like me. And... Um, I didn't want to self-diagnose, but knowing that I had had treatment for depression for so long, I thought maybe there's something there. Maybe I should pursue this. And that's when I actually sought help from a psychiatrist. When was this? 1998. So you had to find that path yourself. Mm-hmm. Even my, my ex-husband um, at the time said that that was... I don't know the words that he used, but he said that 
you're not crazy. It was something like, it was along those lines, right? That um, there's nothing wrong with me. That, that there's this a, is a there's huge... There's like a bar of crazy you need to clear right. to see a psychiatrist to get psychiatric help and you didn't clear that bar. Exactly. That, okay, so you may be on an antidepressant. People accept antidepressants. That's like fine. But that's a reach. Bipolar is is a reach. And that's really crazy. And we don't we don't want you to be crazy. And so he discouraged my going to a psychiatrist initially. Um, but I thought, I really thought this sounds like me and I need to do something <laughs> because I, it was getting worse. I was going from like these highs where I would, you know, rearrange the furniture and paint the house to I would be up until three in the morning and I, then I couldn't sleep the next day. And then, I mean, it would just be, it would be more intense, the things that I was doing and the little sleep that I was getting. And you could feel the progression. Yeah. Yeah. And it, so it wasn't fun. It wasn't fun to be, to be bipolar. If that's what, it, if that in fact was what I was doing was fun, it wasn't that way anymore. And when you went to the psychiatrist in 1998, mm-hmm. was your suspicion confirmed? Yes. Yeah. Um, so I thought that it was going to be like I was depressed and I had a little bit of hypomania and that was it. And it was so it was going to be really a mild diagnosis, right? That it wasn't going to be, um, I wasn't going to be really crazy. Um, but it came back. He told me that the diagnosis was bipolar one and that um, I had had these long periods of depression. And then he w- was explaining mania to me. And um, I didn't like that. I didn't. You were hoping for kind of bipolar light. Yeah, exactly. I didn't want to have this um, big scarlet bee. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I wasn't happy about that. Mm-hmm. One way to think of bipolar disorder is to imagine a control panel of you with a mood dial, an energy dial, a risk-taking dial, a libido dial, a sleep dial, and a motivation dial. Now, imagine that these dials are oscillating awkwardly, not in any kind of coordinated, sensical way. Elizabeth's diagnosis of bipolar 1, or what used to be called manic depression, represents the most chaotic movements of these dials, where more often than not, one feels frighteningly out of control. And so being diagnosed actually made me worse if it if that's possible or I just got sick or and that was just a trigger who knows um but I ended up in the hospital uh, for the first time Mm -hmm. and um I went I went up to the mountains because I that's what I did when I wanted to find solace and I took a journal and I thought I'm going to go up to the mountains and I'm going to climb this mountain and I am going to write and I watch the sun come up. Um, well, apparently that's not a very normal thing to do when you just leave your house and <laughs> um, you leave your kids and you just do that all by yourself and no one knows where you are. And then I was up all night and then I couldn't get, when I was leaving, I couldn't get down the mountain so I was like almost having to 
because I didn't go on a path. And so I kind of had to like scoot my way down the mountain. And that was unpleasant. And then I couldn't get my car out of the way. So I kept like doing the like, you know, trying to get it back it up and back it forward, back it up, back and forth, you know, back and forth. And um, I ended up hitting a, a big set of like rocks. So I hit my car and then I was furious. And um, by the time I got home, I was just enraged. And this was supposed to be a beautiful time and a beautiful sunset. And everyone is conspiring against me to, um, on my beautiful outing. And so um, I don't remember much other than that, except that I was in the hospital because of those mood swings and that kind of behavior. So that was my first hospitalization. And it wasn't long after I was diagnosed. In those following years, did treatment start to help? Um, a little bit. I, I didn't like a lot of the meds that were presented to me um, because I had had so many bad experiences, but I kept taking them. Did you have any extended periods of feeling and functioning well between 98 and 2010? Um the time I thought I was functioning well um, but no were you also doing psychotherapy during that time I was um, psychotherapy and I have sort of a weird relationship um, I like it you have to find the perfect match um, so so going back to 2010 mm -hmm. They wouldn't let me out of the hospital until I had an appointment with a psychotherapist. And I hated them for that. <laughs> I thought that um, I thought that was unreasonable. And I kept trying to tell them that I would I would do it on my own. I promise. I promise I'll be good. I promise I'll go find a therapist. Um, but I wasn't allowed to even leave the hospital without an appointment. And I have found um, I, I've had mixed results with, with psychotherapy. Some, some therapists are, I believe are genuinely trying to help you and, um, and not, not try to fix you, but be there on your journey as you find wellness yourself and others have their own agenda. And, um, you experience some other agendas. I experience some other agendas. <laughs> Such as? <laughs> um, I had someone who was very into, um, what's that called? The EDMR? Is oh, that EMDR. EMDR. Thank you. And that's great. But um, when I suggested that this wasn't necessarily for me, I felt like I had to put on a show to make her happy rather than it being the other way around, saying, this is not what is working for me. I need to find something that, that works for me, not, not, what's, not what you want to see come out of this. Um, and, and it's hard to find people who are really genuine in what they are doing for you. 
did you have an experience in psychotherapy that gave you some meaningful insights or support or help along your journey? Um, the one thing that has been helpful is is find, is helping me work through the shame and the guilt because that's always there. It's it's there as much as the gratitude is. And being able to, I, I've had someone who helped me sort of work through that and not where I don't feel so much blame anymore on myself and, um, and realize that it's, it's okay. It, it happened and it's okay. How did you get there? And obviously that's a multi-year journey, I you know, but to, from a place filled with sounds like a lot of guilt and shame to more where you are today, which is a, a very different perspective on your story and what happened and, and what didn't happen. It's interesting. Um, if you want therapy to work, and not only do you have to find someone that's a good fit, um, all of that, but you have to put in the work yourself. So if I just were to go there weekly and say, okay, teach me how to not feel shame about my past. That'd be a cool trick. Right. That would be great. <laughs> but, but I have to put in the work and I have to do what I need to do to, um, to make myself healthy. When I discuss medication options with my patients, I often tell them the good news is the bad news. We have lots of options. It just might take a while to find the right thing. Elizabeth's path finally came to clozapine, a medication which many psychiatrists believe is the gold standard mood stabilizer. And later, she added ketamine treatments when the darkness started to return. In those early years of treatment with various psychiatrists, it sounds like there were some difficult times. Sometimes treatment was not going well. Yes. Um, the doctor who diagnosed me as bipolar 1, um, the first med that I was put on was Depakote. And there were some others, too. There was um, some big antipsychotics that are like the... Um, like when you think of... One flew over the cuckoo's nest. They're like that kind of intense antipsychotic. And um, I complained. I gained so much weight, like almost immediately. It seemed like it was overnight, and I gained like 40 pounds. And when I was complaining about some of the side effects, like my hair was really brittle and um, I was shaky and the, obviously the weight gain, he was very dismissive. Like, well, that's just what happens, and it's going to be okay. And you know, you're a Zofta, you just need to learn to embrace your curves. And I thought, wow, the one person who's supposed to be giving me the best care in the world um, really doesn't care. And I found that that was really true. And it's the, it's, it's the total opposite of what I have now, where I have always felt um, believed and... Um, honored that my feelings are not just like passed off but that this is a partnership and that we're working together to find out what is going to work best for me and that's that's extremely different from my early psychiatrist mm -hmm. and 
and the psychiatrist in between that. Did you have multiple psychiatrists? I did. Um, I've had between um, then and now, there have been a total of four others between um, the psychiatrist I have now. And they were, unfortunately, every single one was a disappointment. Um, They were, a couple of them, I felt, were writing out prescriptions for the drug that they, it was like their drug of choice. And so they wanted me to be on it because that was the drug that they used and they didn't do anything else. They didn't vary from the script. This is what they did. Um, and they didn't give me a lot of time. There was one, there, one of my psychiatrists rarely even looked up from his desk. There was, um, he sat behind this big, big, you know, sturdy oak desk. And he was probably 92 years old. He was like super (laughs) old, but, um, and he just would hand me over this prescription and that was, that was it. I saw him monthly to get new meds. And that was the only reason that I saw him at all. It was, it was hard. It was really, really hard Uh, to. Yeah. I'm guessing that speaks to the depth of your pain that despite having some really difficult and troubling relationships with um, therapists and psychiatrists that you still stuck with it. I, I hope that the history books will go down and say, you know, she persevered. She kept <laughs> trying, right? Mm-hmm. Um, she, she didn't give up. And even though I feel like I could have been a better mother, I could have been a better wife, I could have been a better daughter, a better sister. Um, I was always trying. I never gave up. I kept going. Tell us a little bit about the role of faith, your church. You you alluded to that a few minutes ago that you grew up in a religious family. Has that, or how has that been a source of support, healing, and maybe the alternative, and maybe a source of guilt and or shame? How did it support you? How did it hinder and or hinder you? It's like that forked tongue, you know, I guess. (laughs) Um, There are... It was really hard, I feel like, for a long time, and especially in the 90s, um, where I was trying to bend myself and make myself fit into um, that religious box because that's what people around me were doing. That's what was expected of me. When I was little, and I think that this is true probably for most children, you do what your family does, and it makes sense, and you love that because you love your family so much. Um, when I started to doubt what I was believing and it became a source of, um, when it became a problem, um, it was, I wanted so much to find comfort there. I knew that, like again, in the 90s, I knew that things were terrible for me. And so I tried so hard to fit into that box again. And I just, I wanted, I felt like my husband would love me more, that I would have a closer relationship with my children, that I would have a bigger support network. And it was the opposite. Um, There was a lot of gossip. There was a lot of pettiness. There was a lot of judgment. 
from the the people around me, the people in my church, and um, and it didn't it didn't help matters. It didn't help things with my husband at all, like I was hoping it would. Let's fast forward up to 2010 and the time each, between then and now, 2019. You told us at the beginning of this episode how you came out of your five-day coma, essentially, and did not want to be alive, and that it took weeks or months before you even began to find sort of the acceptance that, well, this is what I'm going to be doing, and the gratitude for being alive came much later. Yes. Um, I don't think that there was any one thing. Um, it, nothing was really linear. It wasn't like I could like outline and say, one, two, three made me better. One, two, three made me angry. Or um, it, There was a whole bunch, but I was extremely angry. Um, I was angry that I was still alive. I was angry at my husband for finding me. Um, I was angry at the doctors for saving me. I was angry at the world for how unfair it was that I was sick while other people were well. And I was angry at how people took that for granted, how people just took their normalcy for granted um, when all I wanted was to be normal. And um, I I was angry at God. Um, I, I'd left um, the church two years before and um, and I'd sort of come to this acceptance that you know I believe in science and there is no God that would make me atheist okay I'm okay with that or maybe more agnostic I let's let the mystery be you know I, nobody knows what's out there but after this I was furious how could there be any sort of divine being who would let this happen to me who would let me wake up to the hell of trying to like fight for my kids and um, find a place in this world where I belong and where my life will make sense again. Um, I was I was very angry for a long time. Um, being allowed to have that anger was important, though. It was an important part of my journey, allowing me to be really angry. Are you still angry today? No. Not at all. No, I'm not. <laughs> Sometimes I feel like I want to be, but then, <laughs> but then I think about, I go back to the gratitude that I've mm-hmm. developed. Take us through the evolution and growth of your gratitude over the last few years. Um, So, again, I don't know that anything's really linear, but um, so every year um, on the anniversary of what would have been my suicide, um, I take the day off and um, I start by thinking about the first things that I'm grateful for. And I do things that um, are very sensory, like get a massage or um, go swimming um, I like to eat strawberries <laughs> because they're very, you know, you can feel those. Um, and it, it doesn't matter if it's rainy or if it's sunny. I spend time outside 
and I go through um, first I list the things that I would have missed um, I would have missed my daughter's wedding um, I would have missed my children's graduations and I mean like those seem like little things but um, life is made up of little things life is made up of little things and so I write about the things that I would have missed. I write about the things that I can feel and the senses that I have. And um, it's a very big way for me to kind of reflect on my gratitude. Um, so that's those are that's a big way. Um, every day, though, I find something that I'm grateful for, whether it's the sunrise that I see as I'm going, you know, into work, or it's a smoothie that I made, or it doesn't, I mean, it could be, Big, little, it doesn't matter, but I find something every day. Mm-hmm. Do you still have periods of darkness? I do. Um, they're not They're not the type of dark that I was in in 2010. They're not that bad. But I do, I do get to dark places um, where I get sad, and I know that it's, I know it's beyond something bad happened and so I'm sad about it it's not something outside of me but it's this like organic internal me being miserable and I can't get past it and I have to find that's again where my psychiatrist comes in the first thing I do is um, I look to my husband and he says yep it's time to call your doctor (laughs) and and then we come up with a plan how has that plan evolved over the last nine years since you almost died. So um, so there's one big thing um, that I started doing, and um, we do ketamine treatments. And never in my life had I done any sort of drug, like club drug, nothing ever. And so this was really different for me. And again, it goes to that trust. I'm like, okay, I'm going to trust you. I'll try it. <laughs> In coming episodes, we will more deeply explore the mysteries of ketamine, perhaps the most hopeful development in depression treatment in the last 20 years. Ketamine seems to trigger a brain reset, a control-alt-delete, if you will, out of depressive and suicidal thinking. And it was really sort of amazing because I could go, not only did it pull me out of a dark place, but then I would have this extended break where I was feeling good. Um, Med-wise, drug-wise, that's something. I mean, there's, of course, the things that I do for myself to try to stay well. But yeah, that, what, do you, what do you do to stay well? Um, well, earlier, like I was talking about the things that I like to do. I bake. Um, I read. I like movies. Um, I like going on walks. And, um, and then I try to draw upon the love that that other people give. Mm-hmm. Elizabeth, is there one or even a couple final things that you would want to share with our listeners, wisdom or insights or experiences? Because you've had quite a journey. You've had some many deep lows and some hard-earned wisdom. <laughs> um, I I heard something recently about light and um, look for light because it is where you once were 
it's there now and it will be where you are going. And so um, you may not feel it, but life really is beautiful and it's worth it. It's worth working for. It is beautiful. Yeah. It's been really, really powerful experience to have you on today. I want to thank you so much for coming to share your story. Thank you for having me. And I know so many elements of what you talked about are going to resonate deeply with folks hearing this. So thank you, Elizabeth. Thank you. What most strikes me about this story is Elizabeth's grit, her fierce intention over all those years to get help. It can take time, sometimes a long time, to find the right therapist, the right doctor, the right treatments. It's so much easier to climb out of the abyss with the right plan and the right people at your side. Elizabeth's story also speaks to the healing power of gratitude. Gratitude is an antidote for pain, for loss, for guilt, and for shame. When we hold gratitude, we hold hope, we hold peace. If you like this episode, please share it with anyone else who might find hope or meaning in this story. Check out our website, bftapodcast.com, where you can learn more about us and this project, get more information on the treatments mentioned in the stories, as well as additional resources and music credits. You can also email us with comments or story requests. If you have time, please rate us on iTunes as this helps us spread these stories far and wide. Much gratitude to my good friend Chris Johnson, who does our sound. And thank you for listening to Back from the Abyss. May each of you find the strength and support to find your way through the darkness.